Hello, I'm Kendra Winchester here with Autumn Privet, and this is Reading Women, a podcast inviting you to reclaim half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women. And today we're talking to Katya Apakina, the author of Deeper the Water, the Uglier the Fish, which is out now from $2 Radio. Hi, Kendra. I'm so excited to talk about this. This was definitely one of my favorite books of last year. Yeah, I remember at the end of the year you were reading it and you kept sending me text messages. This is so good. Just over <laughs> and over. I know. I would planned to read it slowly over the break I had over Christmas. And then I think I read it in two or three days, something like that. It does suck you in and you're just like, I can't believe what's happening. I must read more. <laughs> it's not a thriller, but it kind of reads like a thriller in that it's very page turnery. Um, but the thing that drew me to this book was, first of all, the cover, which looks like some sort of 70s acid trip or something. But then like <laughs> the title, The Deeper the Water, The Uglier the Fish, I'm like, okay, I have no clue what this book is about, but I have to read it just because that title is amazing. Yes. And I remember when I picked this up, I was like, I have, no, I have no idea what the book was about at all. And I open up and I start reading about this extremely dysfunctional family. And I'm like, this is really difficult reading. And it's very intense, but I need to read more. Like, <laughs> yes, yes. And that's probably something good to note here is that there are some trigger warnings for this book as far as suicide and child abuse. So just be aware of that if you are sensitive to those topics. So while this book does have some intense topics, it is incredibly beautiful, and we are so thrilled that Katya was willing to come on the podcast and chat with us about it. Absolutely. And Katya, this is her first novel, but she has several short stories published in like the Iowa Review, Santa Monica Review, and other places online. And her stories have also been on the notable list of Best American Non-Required Reading in 2013, which is pretty cool. Um, but she's also a translator. So she's a Russian translator, and so she's translated uh, poetry collections and prose as well, which I think is really awesome. And she also writes screenplays, so like basically she does everything and is really awesome. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's I I just was so wild by how many different things she writes. And yeah, it's sort of like when you meet someone and they basically read all the things. It's like how many different genres and types of writing can you possibly do? <laughs> but enough about this intro. Um let's go to our discussion with Katya about Deeper the Water, the Uglier the Fish. Katya, welcome to the podcast. We're so excited to talk about your book today. Thank you so much for having me. I don't remember which of us found... Oh, go ahead. No, you, I was about to say, Autumn, you found the book and immediately was like, we, you need to read this. You need to, you to drop everything <laughs> and go read this book. Yeah, I think I saw the cover and like the combination of the cover plus the title. I was like, I have no clue what this book is about, but I really need to read it. <laughs> yeah. So before we start talking about your book, for our listeners who haven't read your book yet, uh, could you describe it for them? Like what kind of what it's about? Sure. So 
It's told from multiple points of view, and it's about two sisters, Edith and May, who, um, when they're teenagers, they're forced to leave their home with their mom um, because she's committed to a mental hospital following a suicide attempt to go live with their dad, who's a famous writer and who they don't really know at all, um, who lives in New York City. And then a lot of bad things happen. I guess. I feel like it's hard to, it's always hard to talk about without giving too much away, but that's sort of the basic setup. That makes sense. When we were forming our questions, we had to avoid certain topics because we were like, no, we don't want to make a spoiler. But uh, I mentioned the title and like the title is incredible. Like how, how did you come up with that title or where did it come from? So for something like totally unrelated, I was just coming up with fake aphorisms, like fake sayings. I came up with that, which is, you know, like a true statement. If you've ever seen those really deep water fish, they're very ugly, <laughs> ugly and, you know, very like creepy looking. Yes. And then, and then I was kind of having trouble coming up with the title. And then when I came up with that aphorism, I was thinking like, oh, I should just use this as my title because it's so relevant thematically to what happens in the book. But yeah, like the book is not about actual fish. (laughs) Well, I am also, I was also totally drawn in and captivated by the title. And I think, you know, there's so much to ruminate and think about the book. I think the title obviously reflects that, but we won't get into a lot of those details, like Autumn said, because of spoilers. Uh, But one of the fascinating things I found about your writing is that you're a prolific writer, but this is your first novel. So you've done so many different things uh, in writing. So we wanted to ask you about what was your writing process for writing a novel as opposed to what you've worked in in translation? Um, I think you wrote a screenplay as well Mm -hmm. and uh, how that differed from your normal writing process. Yes. I had done some screenwriting and translation, like basically right out of college. And then I had done an MFA. And during the MFA, I was really just working on short stories. And this is my first novel, like the first one I've ever written, not just the first one I've ever published. And I started it after grad school. And it was a completely different process because like with the other stuff, I would usually work on multiple things at once and kind of, it was all a pretty quick turnaround. So there was constant sort of like feedback. And with this, it took, I mean, five years really. And I didn't work on anything else like creatively during those five years because it was so hard that I thought that if I did anything else, I just would Like, basically, if there's anything else that gave me any amount of creative satisfaction, I would have just immediately abandoned this because it was, you know, it's a very dark novel and it kind of required me to go into some really like dark places, which was difficult. And it's just a huge act of faith too to write a novel because you're, as you're writing, you're never sure, like, will it hold together in the end? Like, what if I just write this whole thing and then I get to the end and it just all sort of collapses, you know, like... I wasn't really sure if I would even be able to finish it. And then on top of that, like after I finished it, I wasn't sure would I be able to publish it? Would I be able to like get it out into the world? So I feel like 
I just was kind of a mess for five years while I worked on it. And it was like a very different process from the other type of stuff that I did, which was often like collaborative or at least like with screenwriting, it was collaborative or just like kind of shorter term. So it didn't feel quite as high stakes. So since you already were working on other writing projects previously uh, in your writing career, what drew you to writing a novel specifically when you you know, we're are doing all of these other things as well. Well, it's funny. When I was in grad school, I had this mentor, um, Catherine Davis, and I remember like showing her my short fiction and she was very supportive, but I remember her saying, like, I think you're actually a novelist. I don't think you're a short story writer. And at the time I hadn't written any novels. So I was just like, okay. You know, like when somebody <laughs> tells you something like that, you're just like, what do you do with that? Um, <laughs> So, but I think she's right. Like there's something so exciting and fun for me in being in like the world for a long period of time. Like, I just feel like I was able to go a lot deeper, like from like an emotional point of view than I had in stories. Like, I think a lot of my stories are like very fun, but, um, because of like, just the, you know, like, I feel like I know these characters a lot more deeply than I've known any other characters that I've ever written about, just from spending so much time with them. <laughs> that totally makes sense. And that said, though, I felt I'm a huge short story fan. And I did feel like each of the chapters in the book held that same kind of suspense, maybe that a short story has <laughs> where you're like wondering what's going to happen next. So it makes sense. Like now that I'm thinking about, it, I'm like, oh yeah, like I can see elements of like short story styles in it, um, which is really cool. Yeah, I mean, it's told from multiple points of view, and the sections are all very short. You know, so I feel like when I had started it, I was sort of, you know, I'd only written short stories before, and the idea of just having it in one voice and like sustaining one voice over, you know, like 300 pages seemed really daunting to me. And I thought like writing it sort of the way I would write short stories from all these different points of view, I thought it would be easier, which, you know, to be honest, I don't know that it was easier, but I felt like it was the form that this story needed to be in, if that makes sense. Well, that's one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about, but I'm a huge fan of novels from multi-perspectives. You could say it is my kryptonite. Um, <laughs> I absolutely adored the structure of this book and I thought it was just, like you said, this, the format that the story needed to be in to be told to the best of its ability. Uh, so aside from just, you know, feeling and using your writer's instinct to feel out the format of the story, uh, what drew you to this type of like mosaic structure of telling, uh, this almost like this family's story? Well, it's interesting. I was just thinking about that, actually, um, because I was home and my parents have this like old, these old photo collages that I used to make in high school. And I was looking at them and thinking like, wow, this is basically like, maybe this is just how my brain works, you know, because it's kind of the same thing um, with photo collages. It's like lots of sort of pieces that form a bigger picture um, but that don't entirely jive with each other. And I just thought it like was so strange that I had like the visual, like I was doing like the visual equivalent in high school of what I ended up kind of writing for my first novel. 
But I think like I'm always interested in like, well, what is the truth? And like the truth is never one simple thing, you know? And as I was writing the story, I was just kind of trying to understand the situation from all the different perspectives. And those sometimes contradict each other, sometimes complement each other or just, you know, run parallel to each other. Like, it's not necessarily that people are lying, but they seem to experience the same thing and have completely different takeaways from like the same literal events. That was the one part of this story that really grabbed my attention was this concept of of memory and it was so fascinating and so perfect like how each family member like the two sisters remember the same events differently and like I even felt like there's maybe a collective family memory that like the story that everyone was trying to maintain what was it was it just like the mosaic part of it or like was there something else about memories and like that you mentioned the truth that was that drew you to this topic? There's a, there's a few things. I guess, you know, the, the sort of myth around artists um, and muses and that kind of relationship that I feel like is talked about usually from the artist's perspective, but it's not really talked about like all the fallout around the artist. And so I wanted to kind of give a sense of that. And then also in terms of just memory, it's like, well, so first of all, like two people, I have a brother and it's like, we both grew up in the same family, but it was completely different experiences. And I think that's really common. And then also compounded on that is like one of the sisters is in the present tense in the book, experiencing stuff immediately, sort of, and it's her immediate visceral reactions. And the other sister is looking back on on it from a point in the future. So she's sort of like been able to process a lot of this stuff. And so, so the, the structure is kind of complicated in that sense. But I think like they as characters evolved from those structural choices, you know? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Yeah. So I think that was sort of like that structure was kind of the first thing that I had. And then the story really evolved from the structure because I always knew, like, I sort of pictured it like a swarm of bees, you know, like rather than a straight line. And it's like all of these uh, characters, some of them like super peripheral, like have their own story and just kind of picture them like stinging the reader And, like, you get a sense of the shape of the truth from just kind of, like, the swarm, if that makes sense, rather than seeing it as this sort of, like, linear, clear narrative. Because I think a lot of times when we're thinking about an event from our past, like a traumatic event from our past, it feels very complicated and hard to pin down. And usually whenever you try to turn it into a linear narrative, it feels like it's like oversimplifying it or not doing it justice in some way. Well, you, it's funny that you mentioned that because I had imagined like tuning into different frequencies mm-hmm. and like it, it might get fuzzy here and there and just like all these different perspectives. And I loved the characterization in your novel because like you said, like you, you know, these characters really, really well and you have to tell the same story from different ways. But I always feel like it's almost like it's a new scene when you're reading like a sim, you know, from a different perspective. Yeah. And, um, I, I just love that. And like I said, it was my, it's my, I just, (laughs) but going into this book, this book is, is, 
pretty intense. I had to put it down several times to just give myself a breather because there was so much happening. And so I'm going to try to ask this question without spoilers as much as possible. Okay. <laughs> like you mentioned, the girls go to live with their dad, who they barely know, and he is a famous novelist. And he has a lot of weird behaviors, to say the least. And, you know, a lot of their father's erratic behavior has been just written off as, well, that's the artistic temperament. Like, mm-hmm. they're supposed to be that way. They're geniuses. They're going to be, you know, weird and whatever, but that's what they have to do to create their art and so on and so forth. Um, and you were talking about this a little bit earlier in our conversation. Uh, what made you decide to tackle this topic um, from so many different points, even? Because there are several artists in this book, and they all kind of play off this idea of the artistic temperament. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Well, my mom is an artist, so I grew up surrounded by artists. So I think, to me, it's like the most kind of the thing I like know the most about or have been around the most. So it seems the most natural, not like exotic at all. I think like I just was comfortable writing about artists, but yeah, you're right. There are a lot of artists like May ends up being an artist and their mother is a poet and their dad is, you know, this, this famous novelist. I think it just, there's just something so outrageous about the way that like male artists have just behaved I think like we always, because we're so used to that sort of narrative, it doesn't even seem outrageous to a lot of people Mm -hmm. um, until his voice is sort of taken out and you see all of like the reactions around him. But yeah, I mean, I think about that a lot, like as a writer myself, like, is it necessary to sort of be a vampire to people around you when you're making (laughs) art? You know, it's something I like, you know, I worry about and think about. I have a a daughter who's four and she was born like while I was writing this book, you know? And so I just, it's something I like think about with her, like how is me kind of being in this other world when I'm working and then having to sort of interact with her after like going back and forth between like, you know, whatever is in my head and like just the being in the world can be difficult sometimes. And like, you know, so it's something I worry about or I'm conscious about, like, how does me making art affect people who depend on me, I guess. You know, I recently read Leslie Jameson's book, The Recovering, and she was talking about something kind of similar about this myth around the male artist and how they, you know, would get drunk all the time and how, you know, they would have all this, like, really bad behavior that was just really just written off because of the same thing that you're talking about. But I, I've never seen anyone tackle that in a fictional sense. So I was really, that's one of the things that I really appreciated about your story is that it kind of questions that, like as the default, you know, the, it questions the artistic t- temperament as like the default and really digs into like, oh, well, how is it affecting people? Yeah. So I, I, I really enjoyed that part. That's not really a question, but <laughs> I just really enjoyed that. <laughs> I think it's just so rare to read a novel that it's the story about the people around the artist as yeah. opposed to the artist itself, as it were, and how it affected them. And I really I really appreciated the way that you tackled this patriarchal idea that the male artist is allowed to basically use women, whether physically or emotionally, 
to create his art and, and that it is totally acceptable, like you were saying, because I feel like we don't just see one version of that. We see so many different ways that their dad has used women around him, whether it's be his sister or his lover or, you know, his daughter or whatever. And like it just unravels from there. And it's like, once you start looking at it, you can't unsee it and you see it everywhere. And um, we know that the beginning of the book that May is now an adult and that she's worked on some projects about telling her experience with her father in the beginning of the book spends a lot of time talking about that we'll just say and almost like she's able to support herself because this thing happened to her as a as a child and you know moving forward and it's like where's the cycle end yeah it's like a hall of mirrors it's like everything is material yeah and one thing reflecting back another I mean I thought about that too with the structure it kind of allows for that there's a lot of like you know, I thought a lot about like parents passing things on to their kids and stuff like that. And the way that that sort of there's iterations of that, like passing on trauma, but also passing on, I guess, other things, too. And we'll be back with more from our conversation with Katia Apakina after a word from our sponsor. The sponsor of this episode of Reading Women is The Great Courses Plus. As avid readers, we are constantly seeking to learn new things, to gain insights into the world of books and characters that fascinate us, and to better appreciate our own world, which is why we love The Great Courses Plus. This streaming learning service offers in-depth, reliable information on just about anything we're interested in. I mean, from linguistics to cooking to science, psychology, uh, or even learning a new language. This is the unlimited access to thousands of topics, and it's presented by renowned experts who are so passionate about what they teach, and you can watch or listen entirely on your own schedule from anywhere. One of the courses that we have been enjoying is The Secrets of Great Mystery and Suspense Fiction. As you know, we are both big mystery readers around here, especially me. And the thing that's really fascinating about this course is that it tracks the entire history of the genre. It is a 36 lecture series, and it starts with the mystery fiction secret formula, talks about detectives, criminals, sidekicks, clues, and works its all the way through the history of detective fiction into multimedia, courtroom dramas, and like topics like poetic justice. It's really cool to track the history of mystery novels through all these different themes and topics. And there is so much to discover on The Great Courses Plus, and we know you'll love it too. Uh, to help you get started, they're offering our listeners a special limited time offer, a full month of unlimited access to their entire library for free. All you need to do is go to thegreatcoursesplus.com forward slash reading women. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash reading women. And we will have a link in our show notes so you can easily access it for yourself. And thanks to The Great Courses Plus for sponsoring this episode of Reading Women. So another topic that you could tackle in your book that we haven't really talked about yet is the mother's mental health. Dozens of books tackling this topic throughout literature, you know, Mrs. Dalloway and The Bell Jar. What was your strategy for like writing about men women's mental health? And maybe how does that relate to what we've been talking about with artistic temperament? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think like with her mental health issues, she seems like. Um, I mean, maybe the, what happened to her would have happened to her regardless, but it also seemed like she was a sensitive and fragile person, and the events with Dennis kind of pushed her to that outcome, which isn't to say that it was his fault directly necessarily, but she certainly sees it as being that way. And her dad, you know, had also had premonitions about this. You know, like I didn't start off thinking like, oh, I'm going to write about a specific diagnosis kind of thing. Like I thought of her as just a person. And even though I can kind of imagine what psychiatrists would probably say her diagnosis would be, like it it was sort of, it, di- it didn't really matter to me specifically. Like I just kind of understood her as sort of like a sensitive, fragile person who then events kind of pushed her over the edge. And then also, you know, as a result of of that, too, like she is very absorbed in her own problems. And so, you know, if you're looking at it from her daughter's point of view, you can see how she, you know, it wasn't easy for them either to have a mother like that. And that's one of the things I really appreciated about your approach to their mom's mental health, that Marianne, we see her from her roommate's perspective when she is and the facility getting treatment and that roommate has like this omniscient kind of understanding like they called her bipolar but they called everyone bipolar mm-hmm. and it's almost like you're you're just showing the tip of the iceberg of the issues about women's mental health mm-hmm. and how hysteria is still even today a genuine problem like people if they could without getting away with it they would still diagnose women as hysterical and how that didn't help Marianne get the help she needed. Definitely. uh, Because they weren't approaching it in that way. Did you do any sort of research on facilities at the time in 1997? Or was it just something that you had have absorbed as you were writing this? Um, I didn't do like very extensive research about, I mean, I feel like I've read a lot of memoirs and stuff like that, but I, but not specifically in the nineties. So And also, you know, I have friends who've experienced that and who I've talked to. So I feel like I have some kind of sense of what it was like, but it wasn't, you know, I didn't do very extensive research, like, about the specific era and stuff like that. I have family, close family members who um, are bipolar, and so they have described their experiences to me and, and just wanting to talk and share their story. And I felt that Marianne was... I don't know, it was like there was a very kinship there in their descriptions of their stories in that the whole process of being a woman with a mental health problem and you're trying to get the help you need, but it's not there. And what you end up getting instead is may or may not be helpful, you know? Um, yeah. And I feel like you can definitely feel that. And I think that, you know, when Edith goes and visits her mom, you can see like she knows like her mom isn't getting exactly the help she needs. Yeah, which I felt was just beautifully portrayed in in that. That's not that's not a question either. We're just we're just <laughs> like, oh my goodness, this book. Like we just we just need to process it. <laughs> yeah, I think um, I tried to have just as much empathy for all the characters as I can. You know, so I have a lot of empathy for Marianne, and I also have a lot of empathy for. May, you know, who feels like her mother 
um, like consumed her. So I feel like I pretty much try to kind of, I mean, it's really interesting talking to people who've read the book because it's like, because I think I tried to be as, you know, impartial, people have like such different takeaways depending on who they just decide to believe or who they kind of side with, whose narratives they, they, they feel like they trust more than others. But I don't know that I like particularly trust any of the characters' narratives more. I mean, this is each of their realities, you know what I mean? And I don't know what, what the truth truth is, really. I mean, I don't think there is a truth truth. There's just these individual truths kind of clumped together. But that, I think that's the thing that was my favorite part about the book is like I grew up in a large family and you know as my siblings and I are getting older we all have different versions of the truth and when I finished I I was glad that you didn't like have one version of the truth I was like oh good I'm so glad like I'm left wondering because I feel like that's really true to life so Autumn and I are located in the south and I would feel remiss if I didn't ask you about your use of place in the book and how that changes the perspectives of the characters and how location has such meaning. And even when uh, Edie is on this road trip, like she goes through Appalachia and and uh, West Virginia in particular, possibly you could have located the girls in their home uh, situation in a various different places in the country and they could have gone, you know, to New York to their dad. What drew you to Louisiana in particular? So, well, I lived in New Orleans, so it was a place I knew really well. And so all of the locations, Los Angeles, New Orleans, New York, are all places that I lived in. And the road trip through West Virginia, I've never lived there, but I have, you know, done road trips through through there. So I feel like there's just, like, the book is not autobiographical, but there's something about needing for me needing to write about places that I've been to otherwise I kind of can't even just picture my characters moving through the space so it was partly practical but then also you know the backstory involving um the civil rights movement and Dennis's relationship with Marianne when she was younger and with her father that all had to take place in in the south and so it was kind of like of that place. And I feel like her, the, the sort of traumatic events that she had also experienced were, were connected to the place, if that makes sense. No, it definitely does. Uh, Autumn and I are very passionate about Southern and Appalachian literature being that's where we're from. Mm-hmm. And so I opened the book and Autumn, I don't think, I mean, if Autumn mentioned that it was set in, you know, partially in Louisiana, I don't remember. And so I was like, I think oh, I did. You, did you? I might have. I don't remember. I might have forgotten as well. So So opening up, it was a delightful surprise to read that part of this novel. It's set in the South because I feel like the South often is not considered to be a place where artists live, if that makes sense. That there's this, I almost like this um, preconceptions around the South. And I, I appreciate how you tackled those and looked at those and analyzed place in addition to the characters. Yeah. I mean, I love, I love the South. I like New Orleans is probably like the favorite place that I've ever lived in. It's like where my husband and I met and we we lived there for a while. So I feel like there's a lot, there's a lot in the South that I find so interesting and rich. 
Like I, I grew up in Boston, but actually I don't think I've ever written um, using Boston as a setting. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Which I guess I know Boston probably better than any other place, but um, yeah, I don't know. I guess like the New Orleans just like captured my imagination a lot more than anywhere else. Like, I'm sure that we could continue to talk about your book for a while, but before we let you go, we always like to ask our guests, like, who are some of the best books or their favorite books by women that they've read recently? Um, so I feel like I mostly read women, um, not like consciously or on purpose, but that just ends up being for the most part what I'm drawn to. So recently I've been doing some research for my next book and it's set during like the revolutionary time in, in Russia. So I was reading this book called Tolstoy, Rasputin, Others and Me, The Best of Teffy. Um, she was a journalist. Um, that was her pen name, like writing at the time about what was happening in Russia. I've also been reading also as research, um, Svetlana Alexievich's Secondhand Time, which is an oral history about the Soviet Union. Oh, yeah. And I have this book about, like, I mean, I have a lot of research about um, women revolutionaries <laughs> in Russia and, like, their memoirs and stuff, which I've been reading. And then a lot of my friends have had books come out in the last few months, and I read and loved those two, Coldwater Canyon by Anne-Marie Kinney and um, Open Me by Lisa Lacasio. And then, you know, I, I love everything Atessa Moshfeg writes, but particularly her last book, I felt like really moved by because I felt like it somehow captured the creative process for me um, in a way that was super interesting. And then I read a lot of short story writers, mostly women right now. I'm reading Deborah Eisenberg's new um, collection, Your Duck is My Duck. Uh, I'm rereading Alice Munro's short stories. What else? I'm just looking at my bookshelf right now to see what, what I have here. I'm sure I'm forgetting. Um, my friend Emily Robbins wrote a great book. Uh, uh, her, the name of her book is A Word for Love. Sorry. I guess that's basically it. I read a lot, and then I feel like I immediately blank usually on what I'm reading. So it's yeah. good that now, yeah, like when I read so much digitally that now I can actually like look and see in my phone, like, what, wait, what did I just read? Because I just, I just like consume um, constantly. And it's not that I don't remember the books, but I just like immediately blank whenever anyone asks me usually. No, same thing. That's why I religiously track my books in Goodreads. Otherwise, I would have no idea what I was reading. Yeah, that's smart. I have a Goodreads account, but I I just I don't update it. So I should do that. It's a good idea. So the other question that we like to ask our guests at the end is, so are there any projects that you're working on now that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah. So, well, I'm working on a second novel, but it's still so kind of early. I can't really go into it too much, but I'm finishing right now, like some 
edits on this project I've been working on. My grandmother, when she passed away, she left me um, her memoirs that she'd written. And I've been translating them from Russian to English and also just like writing around them, sort of like writing commentary around them. And an excerpt of that is going to be in the LA Review of Books. And I'm just um, editing it right right now. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Um, I don't usually, I don't usually write that much nonfiction, so it's kind of a departure for me, but it's been like very, um, it's been very like moving and intense. You know, it's, it's about her surviving the war, World War II, like her whole family was, was killed and she, um, escaped the Nazis and like lived on. It's just very intense reading it and, um, and thinking about, you know, thinking about everything. Having to do with like family history, but it's been like kind of the project I guess I've been most involved in recently. Well, that sounds like an absolutely fascinating project, and we will definitely be on the lookout for any of your new work that comes out in the next couple years or so. But thank you so much, Katya, for coming on to the podcast and talking to us about your book. We really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. I loved it. We'd like to thank Katia Apakina for talking to us about The Deeper the Water, The Uglier the Fish, out now from $2 Radio. You can find her on her website, apakina.com, and on Instagram and Twitter at Katia Apakina. And of course, all of Katia's information will be linked in our show notes. We'd like to say a special thank you to our patrons whose support makes this podcast possible. You can find Reading Women at readingwomenpodcast.com and on Instagram and Twitter at The Reading Women. You can find Kendra at Katie Winchester and me at Autumn Privet. And as always, thank you all so much for listening.